0: welcome welcome
1: it's improbable research podcast number 211 Today, we'll talk about some of the oh-so-wide-ranging research done by Ig Nobel Prize winner Richard Wassersug about the tastiness of tadpoles and also about ever so much other stuff that most people probably never even thought about exploring. And, at the end, we'll look into the twisty rabbit hole of a question of how Murphy's Law got its name – Yes, all of that. This, this is Improbable Research, the podcast about research that makes people laugh, then think. Real research about anything and everything from everywhere. Research that's maybe good or bad, important or trivial, valuable or worthless. Compiled for you by the producers of the Ig Nobel Prize Ceremony. I'm Mark Abrams, editor of the magazine Annals of Improbable Research and founder of of the Ig Nobel Prize Ceremony. In this episode, we're resurrecting things that many of you never got the chance to hear. We intend to make lots of new stuff. We can really use your help on that. We've started a Patreon to fund everything. If you can become an improbable donor on our Patreon, you can get special access to improbable things, early access to episodes, and even copies of the annals of Improbable Research Magazine. Details are at www.patreon, That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N com improbable research for details about everything we talk about today visit our website improbable.com the tastiness of tadpoles most scientific reports begin with an abstract a little summary that by tradition is dry and unappetizing the abstract, the little summary at the beginning of Richard Suggs' 1971 report, is dry, certainly, but it does whet the reader's reading appetite. It says, abstract. Tadpoles of eight species of frog were tasted in a standard procedure by 11 volunteers. The tadpoles were rated in their palatability from tastes good to highly unpalatable. It is suggested that palatability in tadpoles may correlate inversely with vulnerability. The whole report called On the Comparative Palatability of Some Dry Season Tadpoles from Costa Rica was published in a biology journal called American Midland Naturalist. Why would a scientist eat a tadpole? Or rather, why would a scientist talk 11 other scientists into eating tadpoles? to answer a scientific mystery, of course, and also because he could. Tadpoles come in an almost unbelievable variety of patterns and colors. Most blend in with the sand, rocks, or vegetation of the stream or pool where they live. But some tadpoles are covered with gaudy patterns or bright colors or both. Why is it that predators don't eat all of those Those gaudy tadpoles are so easy to spot that you might expect all of them, every one would be gobbled up long before it could grow up and metamorphose into a frog. That kind of frog and that kind of tadpole would almost instantly go extinct. How do they manage to survive generation after generation without being eaten? How do they survive? The leading theory was that the eye-catching tadpoles must taste terrible to predators. They must taste so yucky that predators spurn them. But it was, as they say, just a theory until Richard Wassersug came up with a way to test it. He did so in Costa Rica, where tadpole species are numerous and beer to wash them down with is cheap. Tadpoles have been described as nothing more than miniature underwater cows that graze on algae. Generally speaking, if something wants to eat a tadpole, it can and lots of things do want to eat tadpoles. Beetles, water bugs, dragonflies, many kinds of fish, pretty much anything big enough to fit a tadpole inside its maw. But one cannot expect these hungry creatures to sit at a table with you and conduct a taste test in gentlemanly fashion. So Richard Wassersug decided he would use substitutes for the natural predators of the tadpole. He would use cheap substitutes. He would use graduate students. Wassersug laid out strict taste test procedures. Every effort was made to collect only tadpoles of equal size. The tadpoles were kept alive in clear, fresh water for several hours before the test began. Here's Wassersug's description of the taste test. The tadpoles, which were assigned a number, were presented individually to each subject one at a time and by number rather than name. The taster did not know which tadpole had which number. The tasters were asked to rate the palatability of each tadpole's skin, tail, and body on a 1 to 5 scale. One tastes good, two, no taste, three, only slightly disagreeable, four, moderately disagreeable, and five, very strongly disagreeable. The tasters were also asked to make comments about the taste as they went along and to note afterwards which was the most palatable and which was the least palatable tadpole. The standardized testing procedure included several steps. The tadpole was rinsed in fresh water. The taster placed the tadpole into his or her mouth and held it for 10 to 20 seconds without biting into it. Then the taster bit into the tail, breaking the skin and chewed lightly for 10 to 20 seconds. For the final 10 to 20 seconds, the taster bit firmly and fully into the body of the tadpole. The participants were directed not to swallow the tadpoles, but to spit them out and to rinse their mouths out at least twice with fresh water before proceeding to the next tadpole. Wassersug eliminated two of the 11 tasters because they were heavy cigarette smokers who had difficulty tasting anything during the test. The results of the experiment were sparklingly clear. One species of tadpole, buffalo marinus, was rated the most distasteful by six of the nine tasters. Bufalo marinus was described as being bitter, and nobody professed a liking for it. Several species were found to taste almost good. Generally, the tasters found the bodies to be less palatable than the skin, but more palatable than the tails in most of the tadpoles. On the whole, the results supported Wassersug's idea that the more conspicuous the tadpole, the less palatable it's likely to be. For achieving this small but compelling advance in scientific knowledge, Richard Wassersug was many years later awarded an Ig Nobel Prize in the field of biology. In accepting the prize, he said... I want to point out that the reference to dry season tadpoles in the title refers to when the tadpoles were found. It is not a reference to how the tadpoles were prepared. They were neither dried nor seasoned. I couldn't have won this award without the immense help of all my fellow graduate students in the jungle biology course that I took in Costa Rica 30 years ago. My compatriots who willingly chewed up tadpoles for the reward of a few beers are heroes to me. I thank them all. A dramatic reading from Professor Wassersug's paper on the palatability of certain tadpoles. The dramatic reader is Jean Berko Gleason.
0: On the comparative palatability of some dry season tadpoles from Costa Rica. Abstract. Tadpoles of eight species of frog were tasted into standard procedure by 11 volunteers. The tadpoles were rated in their palatability from tastes good to highly unpalatable, it is suggested that palatability in tadpoles may correlate inversely with vulnerability. The tasters were asked to rate the palatability of each tadpole's skin, tail, and body on a one-to-five scale. One, tastes good. Two, no taste. Three, only slightly disagreeable. Four, moderately disagreeable. And five, very strongly disagreeable. They were also asked to make comments about the taste as they went along and to note the most and least palatable tadpole at the end of the experiment. The standardized tasting procedure included several steps. "'A tadpole was rinsed in fresh water. "'The taster placed the tadpole into his or her mouth "'and held it for 10 to 20 seconds without biting into it. "'Then the taster bit into the tail.' breaking the skin, and chewed lightly for 10 to 20 seconds. For the last 10 to 20 seconds, taste tasted bit firmly and fully into the body of the tadpole. The participants were directed not to swallow the tadpoles, but to spit them out and to rinse their mouths out at least twice with fresh water before proceeding to the next tadpole results and analysis. The most distasteful tadpole was clearly Bufo marinus. This tadpole has distasteful skin, a condition that could not be demonstrated in any of the other tadpoles. The distastefulness of Bufo marinus tadpoles is present as one bites into the animal, but this may be the result of a lingering of the taste from the skin. The increase in range between the taste of the skin and the taste of the tail and body shows that at least one subject felt that the most distastefulness was solely centered in the skin. Bufo marinus was rated the most distasteful tadpole by 6 of 9 subjects. Of those who chose to comment on the t- distastefulness of this or any other tadpole, bitterness was always mentioned. The other tadpoles recorded as most distasteful were Smilisca fiora, Hyla rufitella, and Colestithus nubicola each once. However, none of the tasters who specified these tadpoles as the most distasteful rated them higher than four on the scale. In all these cases, it was only the body that they found distasteful. The most palatable tadpoles, based on the subjective rating of best, were Smiliscus sordida and Colestithus nubicola in that order. Smiliscus sordida was rated best three times and tied for that honor twice— Colostethus was chosen twice as the most palatable. Other species to appear on the most palatable list are H. Rufitela once, H. Rosenbergi, two ties, S. fiota once. The other four species of tadpoles rest between these extremes. These evaluations of the tadpoles tended to be tasteless on the skin and tail, but slightly disagreeable within the body. This distastefulness may result from food in the gut rather than some innate distasteful property of the tadpole. The body cavity of tadpoles is almost entirely occupied by gut in which tadpoles process large volumes of detritus. One taster specifically commented on the grittiness of the gut contents.
1: Richard Wassersuck has always had a taste for the unusual. Throughout his career as a biologist, he has conducted research on a great variety of questions, mostly of great scientific import. Some of his experiments have been more colorful than others. In 1993, Wassersug and a colleague published a report titled The Behavioral Reactions of a Snake and a Turtle to Abrupt Decreases in Gravity. Maybe you can guess what it's about. <laughs> Here's a dramatic reading of Richard Wassersug's paper on behavioral reactions of a snake and a turtle in low gravity. The dramatic reader is Melissa Franklin.
2: The behavioral reactions of a snake and a turtle to abrupt decreases in gravity by Richard Wassersug and Akimi Azumi Kurotani. We report here on the behavioral reaction of two reptiles To abrupt decreases in gravity. (laughs) One striped rat snake, Elaf quadrivirgata, and three striped neck pond turtles, Morimus japonica, were exposed to microgravity on parabolic flight. These are the first behavioral records for any reptiles exposed to hypergravity. Results The snake. As the aircraft entered microgravity on the first parabola, the snake immediately retracted its head into three tight curves. The animal thrashed about violently, twisting and rolling. Three seconds into microgravity, a mid-portion of the snake's body came within approximately 10 centimeters of its head. At that moment, the snake struck itself. As soon as the head hit the body, it was withdrawn. The action was so fast that we could not confirm the video images, only alternate ones of which some are shown whether the mouth was open during this snout body contact or whether teeth were planted into the skin. For the remainder of the parabola, the snake's head stayed cocked as if prepared to strike again. At the initiation of reduced gravity on each subsequent parabola, the snake immediately cocked its head into the pre-strike posture just described. Additional strikes, however, were not observed. The turtle's. The reaction of the turtles to reduce gravity, in contrast to that of the snakes, was slower and more subdued. At the onset of microgravity, the turtles either stayed in contact with a substrate or were thrown between surfaces due to fluctuation in their acceleration relative to that of the aircraft. The turtles tumbled until they hit a wall or one another. They did not withdraw into their shells. On the contrary, they extended their necks and raised their heads while at the same time fully extending and elevating their limbs. The dorsal extension just described was exhibited by a turtle during normal gravity in the aircraft when it landed upside down. The posture was used by the turtle specifically to right itself. It was completely duplicated in the laboratory of Chimane University by simply putting the turtle upside down on a styrofoam sheet. In that position, the turtle was able to contact the surface with its extended snout and claws and hold itself in place, such that it could quickly flip over, i.e. roll in aviation parlance. On the smooth surface of the flight container, the maneuver was futile, except in one case involving the smallest turtle.
1: That same year, 1993, in a report titled Motion Sickness in Amphibians, Wassersug and two colleagues explored the question of whether amphibians get motion sickness by exposing anurans, frogs, and urodiles, salamanders, to the provocative stimulus of parabolic aircraft flight. Animals were fed before flight, and the presence of vomitus in their containers after the flight was used to indicate motion-induced emesis. Emesis means vomiting. <laughs> Here's a dramatic reading from Richard Wassersug's paper on motion sickness in amphibians. The dramatic reader is Jean Berko gleason
0: Motion sickness in amphibians. We explored the question of whether amphibians get motion sickness by exposing anurans, frogs, and urodeles, salamanders, to the provocative stimulus of parabolic aircraft flight. Animals were fed before flight, and the presence of vomitus in their containers after flight was used to indicate motion-induced emesis. None of the species that we studied vomited during the 8 to 10 parabolas of each flight. However, at least one specimen from each of the anurin species, Rana rugosa, Rana nigromaculata, Hyla japonica, and Rachophorus legalii, vomited in a period of 0.5 to 40 Hours after flight. The most distinctive difference between motion sickness in amphibians and mammals that vomit, including man, is the long delay between a provocative stimulus and emesis proper in the amphibians. The retching behavior we induced in the frogs was identical to that described previously for frogs treated with emetic drugs. H. japonica exposed to extended periods of microgravity in the Mir space station flattened their bellies against the substrate and dorsiflexed their heads in a manner reminiscent of drug induced nausea. In light of our current observations of retching behavior in motion sick H. japonica, we suggest that the previously observed behavior of tree frogs on the Mir space station was a manifestation of motion sickness. Discussion motion-induced emesis in amphibians. The presence of vomitus in the containers of pre-metamorphic hynobius, and post rana, hyla, and racophorus subjected to parabolic trajectories answers the core question of our investigation, namely whether or not motion can prov- provoke emesis in amphibians. However, the fact is that at the most, only 17 of 64 frogs tested, a maximum of 27% vomited after exposure to two hours of flight and eight or more cycles of hyper and hypo-G. Among the species tested, the incidence of motion-induced emesis ranged from 0% 0% for C. pyrogaster and X. livis to possibly as high as 50% for R. schlegeli none of the post salamanders vomited and only 1 or 2 Hynobius larvae out of 10 were afflicted with motion sickness thus it seems that frogs are relatively resistant to motion sickness and salamanders even more so <laughs>
1: In 1995, under the supervision of Professor Wassersug, Japanese tree frogs were exposed to 35 cycles of altered gravity on the Free Fall G-Zero ride at the Space World Amusement Park in Kitakyushu, Japan. Two of the frogs managed, unbidden, to get it on with each other. The technical term for that is amplexus. Amplexus is a word to remember in case you ever need yet another euphemism for get it on, which is itself a euphemism. Amplexus. The experiment's results, says Richard Wassersug's report about it, bode well for the potential of anurans to breed in microgravity and to be used for biological research in space. <laughs> A dramatic reading of Professor Wassersug's paper, Amphibian Amplexus in Microgravity. The dramatic reader is
2: Melissa Franklin. Amphibium Amplexus in Microgravity. We report here on the amplectic behavior of the Japanese tree frog, Hyla japonica, in microgravity. Tree frogs were exposed to 35 suckles of altered gravity, including approximately 1.5 seconds of g less than 0. 0.1 every 3 minutes and 15 seconds on the free fall. G0 ride at Space World Amusement Park in Kitak, Yusha, Japan. During this period, a pair of frogs spontaneously entered and maintained amplexes for one hour, 20 minutes, before being removed from the ride. In free fall, the pair extended their hind limbs in the characteristic posture of tree frogs in microgravity. This is the first report of a vertebrate entering and sustaining a copulatory or amplectic posture under gravitational extremes, including true free fall. These observations bode well for the potential of anurans to breed in microgravity and to be used for biological research in space. The tenacity of male frogs and toads to hold on during amplexus is legendary. In certain, taxa amplexus may last for weeks. Some male anurans during the height of the mating seasons have been found amplexing with inanimate objects including dead conspecifics other males and even other species many frog collectors have personally observed male anurans vigorously clasping females when the frogs were themselves in the clasp of a predator to the list of unusual situations where frogs have been found amplexing we now add microgravity on December 2nd, 1993, 20 healthy, active, and mature H. Japonica, 8 males and 12 females, were transported 400 kilometers by car to Space World Amusement Park in Kitakusha, Japan. The next day, they were divided into four groups of five individuals each, with both males and females in each group. Each group was housed in a clear 1.4 liter plastic box, with a layer of wet, spongy foam rubber on the bottom to help keep the animals moist. Each animal was fed one or two small pieces of beef liver approximately one hour before testing. Two of the boxes were then mounted in the passenger chamber of the Freefall G-0 ride at Space World, and two were retained on the ground as controls. Freefall G-0 cyclically exposes its passenger to approximately 1.5 seconds of microgravity G less than 0. 0.1. This reduced g is achieved by a straight freefall drop of 15 meters, followed by a deceleration phase where the passenger chamber slides down a parabolic slope. The vertical g-forces intermittently rise as high as 3.6 g because of the jolts from shock absorbers during this deceleration phase. At ground level, the passenger chamber moves horizontally in a 45-meter loop before a vertical rise of 39 meters, which returns it to the top of the drop tower. During this ascent phase, gravity never rises above 1.3 g. The average cycle time for Freefall G0 is 3 minutes and 15 seconds. Our H. Japonica rode Freefall G0 continuously for 1 hour 54 minutes, tallying up 35 episodes of Freefall. The frogs on Freefall G0 were continuously videotaped with fixed mounted 8mm video cameras during their ride. One of the males, H. Japonica, exposed to Freefall G0 in the illuminated container, amplexed with a female during the fifth cycle but at the end of the deceleration phase, released the female. The same male again amplexed with the female after the 10th episode of microgravity. That couple then maintained amplexus for the remaining 25 cycles on freefall G0, i.e. for more than one hour and 20 minutes. Shortly before the 14th, 18th, and 23rd freefall episodes, the amplectic male extended her neck, the amplectic female extended her neck, (laughs) while the male kept his body flexed. Individual frogs not an amplexus, also showed this same posture on free fall G0. These frogs, however, extended their forelimbs forward at the same time as they extended their hind limbs back. The amplectic male instead held its forelimbs in strong flexion around the pectoral region of the female. During exposure to microgravity, frogs closed their eyes. The pair was still in amplexus when removed from the ride. Neither the amplectic pair nor any of the other H. japonica exhibited signs of distress during the experiment. None, for example, vomited during their nearly two hours on freefall G0.
3: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help.
1: Richard Wassersug's 1971 paper on the comparative palatability of some dry-season tadpoles from Costa Rica led to him becoming a professor of biology at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and becoming a recognized authority on amphibian physiology and medicine. But, as happens to a few great scientists, a most unexpected, most unhappy event gave his life and his research a spectacular turn. In 1998, at age 52, Richard Wassersug was diagnosed with prostate cancer. As a scientist, he understood that the medical therapies available for treatment technically made him into a eunuch. He discovered that being a eunuch has, in addition to the famous drawbacks, some unexpected benefits. Less tendency to be aggressive and pugnacious, more and maybe deeper empathy with other people, and without the hormone-driven sexual distraction, as he described it, a relaxed comfort in savoring the beauty in women's faces. Science mostly overlooks eunuchs as a subject of interest and as a likely source of valuable insights. Richard Wassersug set out to correct that, turning his apparent tragedy into an ecstatic new obsession. His eunuch studies... Many done in collaboration with other scientists, include appraisals of medico-social dilemmas. There are also some wonder-filled looks at unfamiliar parts of the human condition. Wassersug's research took him down a side path where academics seldom go. There are men who, for reasons unrelated to illness or injury, want to be castrated. Richard Wassersug sought to understand the scientific mystery behind these men. In a study called A Passion for Castration, characterizing men who are fascinated with castration but have not been castrated, which was published in the Journal of Sexual Medicine, Wassersug and his colleagues wrote, we identified factors that distinguish those who merely fantasize about being castrated from those who are at greatest risk. A large proportion, about 40% of wannabes' interest in castration was singularly of a fetishistic nature, and these men appeared to be at a relatively low risk of irreversible genital mutilation. Approximately 20% of the men, however, appeared to be at great risk of genital mutilation. A separate study called Eunuchs in Contemporary Society Expectations, Consequences, and Adjustments to Castration reports what may be the most disturbing fact about voluntary castrati. It says The majority of castrations, 53%, were not performed by medical professionals. Eggs all sorts, bird flesh of every kind. Which birds are the most edible and which are the least? During and just after World War Two, Hugh B. Cott of the University of Cambridge doggedly pursued these questions using means that were waspy, feline, and human. His discoveries are summed up in a 154-page report called the Editability of Birds, Illustrated by Five Years' Experiments and Observations, 1941-1946, on the food preferences of the hornet, cat, and man. In October 1941, Cott made a chance observation. While collecting and preserving bird skins in Beni Suef, Egypt, he discarded the meaty parts of a palm dove, Streptopelia senegalensis egyptica. And a pied kingfisher, Cerula rudis rudis. Hornets, at that point, descended upon the palm dove carcass, but ignored the kingfisher. Caught and tranced, later offered other hornets a choice of different cuts breast, wings, legs, and gut of some forty different bird meats in 141 experiments conducted in Beni Suef, Cairo, and Tripoli, Lebanon. The hornets especially took to crested lark, green finch, white vented bulbul, and house sparrow. They voted, metaphorically, thumbs down on golden oriole, hooded chat, masked shrike, and hoopoe, among others. Cott conducted another 48 experiments with 19 kinds of bird meat, using three cats, two cats in Cairo, one in Tripoli, as tasters. In each experiment, the taster cat chose, or chose not to choose, between two different bird meats. To answer the which would a human eat question, Kot gathered data from natives in the Lebanon, from personal experience and from observations sent in reply to a published inquiry and from the scientific literature. Cott drew most heavily from Reverend H. A. McPherson's occasionally mouthwatering 1897 book, A History of Fowling. Surveying the results of all those taste tests, of all those birds, taste tests conducted by hornets, cats, and people, Cott saw both rhyme and reason. He concluded that in most cases, humans and cats Agreed with the hornets in rating more conspicuous species as relatively distasteful when compared with more cryptic species, birds, which are relatively vulnerable and conspicuous, appear in general to be more or less highly distasteful, to a degree likely to serve as a deterrent to most predators. At the other extreme, birds that have especially inconspicuous or camouflaged appearance Cot almost cackles, are those which are especially prized for the excellence of their flesh. The list of these included the Eurasian woodcock, the skylark, and the mallard duck. Among the widely disliked were kingfishers, puffins, and bullfinches. Cott cautioned his readers that palatability may change with growth and age of the bird, and It differs markedly in different parts of the same individual. But as with the special case of chickens and eggs, this is neither the beginning of the story nor its end. At roughly the same time, Cott was also running an extensive program to test the palatability of every kind of bird egg he could find. The titles of his studies are pretty self-explanatory. The palatability of the eggs of birds, illustrated by experiments on the food preferences of the hedgehog, Ernasius Europaeus. The palatability of the eggs of birds, illustrated by three seasons experiments, 1947, 1948, and 1950, on the food preferences of the rat, Rattus norvegicus. The palatability of the eggs of birds, illustrated by experiments on the food preference of the ferret, Putorius furo, and cat, felis catus, with notes on other egg-eating carnivora. Those other carnivora are numerous and include civets, mongooses and meerkats, hyenas, dogs and dingoes, otters uh, otter, excuse me, otters, arid <laughs> wolves and foxes. Cott's research program could, although was not, far as I know, um, be summarized as go suck eggs. Egg palatability experiments are potentially of great value, practical value. Island nations, Britain preeminently, were and are vulnerable to enemies who would block food shipments from overseas. A simple way to begin defending your island nation against a possible food blockade is to collect the available kinds of bird eggs and test their relative palatability. Egg collecting, like other research activities, is not without hazards. Cott relates an incident that's documented in an 1882 monograph, which says The victim, having collected a basket full of the first eggs of the season and wishing to procure more, had sent his wife to empty the basket in the village. In her absence, he fixed his rope to the cliff top and made a second descent. Meanwhile, a fox ran up and gnawed the rope till it severed at the place where the man had previously rubbed his yolk-smeared hands. Cott's experiments mainly addressed a scientific question, asking whether usually the most conspicuous eggs taste terrible to whatever critters might want to eat those eggs. Cott also used human egg tasters In 1946, he entered a six-year collaboration with the Cambridge Egg Panel, one of many similar bodies formed during World War II to help regulate Britain's food supply. Under Cott's direction, panelists tasted the eggs of 212 bird species. This resulted in a 129-page report called The Palatability of Eggs and Birds, Mainly Based Upon Observations of an Egg Panel the report has raw data supplemented with colorful highlights from the taster's own notes and from other sources, including Cot's Coterie of Egg-Collecting Correspondence. For the egg panelists, samples were tested in the form of a scramble, prepared over a steam bath without any addition of fat or condiment. Each taster assessed each sample on a scale dropping from ideal, way down to repulsive, and inedible. The paper concludes with a list of the different egg types in descending order of acceptability. Keep in mind that these are the aggregate preferences. Individual tastes vary. Most acceptable, according to the report, were chicken, then emu and coot, then black-backed gull. The eggs of last resort, as rated by the official British egg-tasting persons, were Green Woodpecker, Vero's Eagle Owl, Wren, Speckled Mouse Bird, and, dead last, Black Tit. Yukot's work proved to be, among other things, inspirational. A generation later, Richard Wassersug cited it as both inspiration and, to some extent, guide for his research into the palatability of of Costa Rican tadpoles. The Ups and Downs of Cows Here's a piece of research about cows. Richard Wassersug alerted me to it. Yes, Richard Wassersug, he of the tadpole palatability testing and the eunuch appreciation. Professor Wassersug is a man of wide-ranging curiosity and apparently incessant scientific and literary grazing habits. A study called are cows more likely to lie down the longer they stand? Adds to our knowledge of what cows do and maybe why they do it. Some researchers succumb to temptation, hazarding unprovable guesses as to cows' intentions, motivations, and desires. Five scientists in Scotland, though, took a careful path, methodically measuring a very specific part of the what and not guessing too wildly at the why. Bert Tolkamp, Marie Haskell, Fritha Langford, David Roberts, and Colin Morgan, based at the Scottish Agricultural College, published their monograph in the journal Applied Animal Behavior Science. The monograph builds upon a large body of work by other researchers. Some of the earlier reports have almost poetical titles. The best in that respect is, in my opinion, a Swedish report called Effects of Milking Frequency on Lying Down and Getting Up Behavior of Dairy Cows. The Swedish authors Sarah Osterman and Ingrid Redbow of the Kungsangen Research Center in Uppsala argue that milking thrice a day rather than twice a day contributes to increased comfort in high-producing dairy cows. The Scottish team focused on questions that stem indirectly from that Swedish study. Tolkop, Haskell, Langford, Roberts, and Morgan in Scotland set out to test two hypotheses, two educated guesses about the nature of cowhood. First, they hypothesized that the longer a cow has been lying down, the more likely it soon will stand up. After gathering lots of what did the cows do data, they report that yes, that's exactly what happens. Generally speaking, you can't keep a good cow down. Not for long, not if the cow is healthy. Their second hypothesis looked at things the other way around. They predicted that the longer a cow has been standing up, the more likely it is to lie down. But here the cows gave them a surprise. After ruminating over their data, the scientific team decided that no, their expectation had been wrong. The truth, they conclude, is that once a cow has stood up, you cannot easily predict how soon it will lie down. This kind of experiment, if it is to produce trustworthy results, requires a series of careful technical decisions. How many cows should you watch, under what circumstances, and for how long? How can you reliably monitor whether and when each cow has officially stood up or flopped down? The scientists examined three groups of cows, 73 individual cows all told. They attached an electronic sensor to each animal to automatically note and record the cow's ups and downs. They then validated some of the sensor's sensings by watching video recordings of some of the cows and comparing what they saw in the video with what the sensors had said. Some uncertainties persist. The question why some cows had total daily resting times less than half of those achieved by other cows in the same experiment, as well as a large number of other questions, says the report, remain to be addressed in future research. Tolkamp, Haskell, Langford, Roberts, and Morgan were inevitably awarded an Ig Nobel Prize for their work. In case you're wondering, Tolkamp Haskell, Langford, Roberts, and Morgan were wondering whether there's anything about a sick cow that might let a farmer notice early on, before the cow becomes really sick, that the cow is becoming sick. That would be pretty valuable information for a farmer to have. That's why this team of scientists was keeping track of the ups and downs of those cows. The birth of Murphy's Law. For most people, the phrase Murphy's Law is synonymous with the saying, if anything can go wrong, it will. Not so many know that there really was a Murphy, and that his full name was Edward Aloysius Murphy Jr. Fewer still are aware of the disagreement about who thought up the phrase Murphy's Law, and the disagreement about what exactly motivated that person. The phrase Murphy's Law was born one way or another, from a moment of exasperation. After World War II, the U.S. Army Air Force ran some frightening tests in the desert at Muroc Air Force Base, later renamed Edwards Air Force Base, in California. They wanted to know how much force a human body could endure. This was not just to satisfy somebody's curiosity. The question was whether more people would survive airplane crashes if the airplanes were built to be sturdier the project engineers built a rocket sled, a metal frame with a chair on top, wheels on the bottom, and rockets attached facing to the rear. The sled rode on a long, straight stretch of railroad track. It could accelerate to speeds well over 200 miles per hour, and then, thanks to special braking mechanisms, come to a screeching halt. John Paul Stapp was the project's medical officer. Stapp could not tolerate the idea of seeing some test pilot's possible death on the rocket sled. So he, John Paul Stapp, decided to ride the sled himself. The main goal was to measure how much force the test pilot endured when the sled slammed to a halt. But the project lacked a crucial piece of technology. A set of electronic transducers needed to gauge to measure that force. That's why Murphy entered the picture. The engineers at Muroc Air Force Base heard that a certain Captain Murphy, located out in Ohio, almost 2,000 miles to the east, was a whiz at electronics. They got in touch, told Murphy what they needed, and Murphy built and hand-delivered a set of transducers. A technician installed the transducers, and the rocket sled was sent on a test run, with a dummy strapped into the seat. After the test run, the engineers looked at the gauges. The readings on those gauges were zero, 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 zero. As if the test run had not even occurred. Something had gone wrong. Murphy examined the transducers, and he immediately saw the problem. The technician had installed those transducers backwards and upside down. It was at that moment that Captain Edward A. Murphy Jr. said, whatever it was he said, Something to the effect that if there's any way they can do it wrong, they will. But no one wrote anything down. It was just one remark made by a very frustrated man. Much later, people would disagree as to whether Murphy had been referring to the technician who installed the transducers or to some general philosophical principle about life. That day, Murphy installed the transducers the correct way, watched a successful test run, and then he went home. That was the end of Murphy's involvement. After Murphy exited the story, the project went ahead full force. John Paul Stapp rode the rocket sled repeatedly at increasingly higher speeds, followed by increasingly violent stops. Stapp endured forces greater than 36 Gs, 36 times the everyday down-to-earth force of gravity. Until then, Engineers and doctors had generally believed that no one could survive even half that much force. And because of that mistaken belief, airplanes had been built too flimsily with inadequate seatbelts, and crash victims had died needlessly. This was big news, as were the spectacular photographs of John Paul Stapp riding that extremely dangerous rocket sled. At a press conference, somebody asked Stapp, How is it that no one has been severely injured or worse during your tests? Stapp's reply, We do all our work in consideration of Murphy's Law. Stapp then explained that they had taken great care to think through all the possibilities before doing the actual test runs. The reporters were charmed. They began telling the world about Murphy's Law. After that, word just kept on spreading. About 15 years passed, though, before Murphy himself first heard the phrase Murphy's Law. By that time, Murphy's Law had become part of the language, part of many different languages. In various places at various times, credit for coining the phrase Murphy's Law was attributed to Stapp or to Murphy or to George Nichols, the project's director and a close friend and admirer of John Paul Stapp. George Nichols, though, was neither friend to nor admirer of Murphy. According to George Nichols, the phrase Murphy's Law was meant as something of a dig at Murphy, not a compliment. John Paul Stapp, who is a prolific writer, is unquestionably the creator of many other similar phrases, including a sentence that manages to combine pessimism, optimism, and a basic knowledge of the human condition. Stapp wrote that, The universal aptitude for ineptitude makes any human accomplishment an incredible miracle. Murphy died in 1990. Stapp died in 1999. The law, Murphy's law, endures. For their contributions to human understanding, the late John Paul Stapp, the late Edward A. Murphy Jr. and George Nichols were jointly awarded the 2003 Ig Nobel Prize in the field of engineering. The official citation lauded them for jointly giving birth in 1949 to Murphy's Law, the basic engineering principle that if there are two or more ways to do something, and one of those ways can result in a catastrophe, someone will do it. Or, in other words, if anything can go wrong, it will. John Paul Stapp's widow, Lily Stapp, could not travel to the Ig Nobel Prize ceremony. So, historian and writer Nick Spark delivered an acceptance speech on her behalf. Here's a little chunk of that speech. John Paul Stapp said, the malignant adversity of inanimate objects rivals the demonic havoc of catastrophic events in producing human frustration. And he may or may not have been responsible for naming Murphy's Law, but from his perspective, Murphy's Law serves as a warning. Think about what might go wrong and what you can do in advance to prevent that from happening. Edward A. Murphy III was at the ceremony, too. He accepted the prize on behalf of his late father, who he said would have been honored to receive this award. In fact, he would have been thrilled even to be invited to an event like this. George Nichols had plans to attend the ceremony, but was in ill health and instead sent a tape-recorded speech. In it, Nichols carefully expressed the reverence that good engineers everywhere always have for the power of the law. He also expressed his belief that Murphy gets too much credit for Murphy's Law. Thanks to John Paul Stapp, many people are alive today who might otherwise have perished in crashes. And not just airplane crashes— Stapp pointed out to the Air Force that more pilots were killed in car crashes than in airplane crashes. Then Stapp pushed long and hard to have seatbelts installed in automobiles as well as in aircraft. In 1966, the U.S. government enacted a law forcing automobile manufacturers to install seatbelts. This was in large part due to John Paul Stapp's lobbying. For Stapp, It had been a pure life-and-death application of Murphy's Law. Plan ahead for whatever is at all likely to go wrong. For a detailed history of the birth and subsequent history of Murphy's Law and the heroic role played by John Paul Stapp, see an article called The Fastest Man on Earth. The Fastest Man on Earth was written by Nick T. Spark and published in the Annals of Improbable Research in 2003. Much of the account I've just told you is based on Nick Sparks' research, which he eventually expanded into a book called A History of Murphy's Law. Some additional information is also available from the museum at Edwards Air Force Base in California. You've been listening, if you've been listening, to Improbable Research, the podcast about research that makes people laugh then. For details about what we talked about today, visit our website, improbable.com. We could very much use your help so that we can make new podcast episodes and make some other improbable and ignoble stuff. Details are at our website and at www.patreon.com www.patreon, slash improbable research. If you become an improbable donor, you'll get special access to improbable things. I'm Mark Abrams. Today, Gene Berko Gleason and Melissa Franklin lent their voices, expertise, opinions, and personal quarters with dramatic readings from research studies you may have overlooked. It's possible that Seth Glixman is the improbable production assistant. It's possible that the mysterious John Shetler or maybe the subterranean Bruce Petrick did the audio engineering of this episode. Next time on this podcast, we'll look at something or other. Until then...
0: Goodbye. 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 <laughs>